Hey, welcome along. This is James Watt, and you have found us. This is Show Talk, the podcast, where I talk to the big stars of theatre, music, comedy, and the rest of it. You will never know who's going to turn them next. And we've got a real star today, uh, Rupert Holmes, the Pina Colada song man today. Going to love him. Uh, there's more to him than just that one song. Honestly, he's done pretty well for himself. Uh, we think he's probably about the most successful Rupert, maybe the only Rupert, uh, to hit the British charts, uh, discuss, okay? But, uh, well, let's catch up with him right now. Welcome to the show. Delightful to be here. Because <laughs> uh, we all know the song. I mean, what's it like to have one massive song that everybody knows you for, and that was obviously only one small part of your life? Um, you know, for for about 10 or 15 years, it was very annoying. Yeah. Uh, because um, I, the Pina Colada song uh, was uh, from my fifth album. I had already produced albums with Barbara Streisand, written movies, uh, Star is Born, that, that film score. And yet everyone sort of defined me as this Pina Colada guy. But, you know, as the years have gone by, I, I actually have a very warm feeling for it because it's it's kind of like an in- instant passport. A lot of people have a lot of personal associations with that song, where they were when they first heard it. And... Um, I'm kind of fond of it now. It's so cool, and, 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 it, and it was the entry as an entry point to uh, to the other stuff that you do, which is an awful lot when you start uh, having a look. Uh, and of course, one of the things that we thought, "Wow, you're one of us." I am. I am indeed, uh, and I have very, you know, I have very vivid memories of my very early years uh, in Winnington and and uh, uh, Hartford and Green Bank and uh, Castle yeah. and Northwich. Uh, I was maybe, you know, the earliest memories I have are being about two and a half, three years old. And I can distinctly remember uh, being at a Guy Fawkes Day bonfire. Uh, one of the firecrackers went off and, and, and burned a run in my grandmother's stocking. And at those days, <laughs> those days, nylons were 1950, were hard to come by. Uh, and I remember my first ride on a double-decker bus at night. And I was bewildered because there were lamps inside the vehicle. And it felt like I was in a living room or something. The seats were comfortable and it was all lit and warm. And I, I and there was a staircase up to the second level, you know, and I just was amazed. I remember the fish market. And we, I lived in a, on a street uh, that ended with an uh, Northwich was an ICI factory town at, at, when I grew up. It probably yeah. still is. And um, the end of my street, Hemming Street, uh, were these three giant smokestacks. And the air smelled of coal fires and a little bit of probably what was pollution from ICI. And it's just one of the great aromas in my life. So I have... Very fond memories. And I saw my... I'm sorry. I'm just going to say I saw my very first Christmas panto when I was three in Northwich. (laughs) And years later, I wrote my first Broadway musical. And when I was done writing it, I thought, oh, my gosh, it's sort of like a Christmas panto. So I I attribute a lot to my early days in Northwich. Why were you in England? Oh, I, um, I'm one of those uh, case histories of of, uh, an American GI who was stationed in Cheshire. My father was a brilliant musician. He had his own infantry division band, and he was stationed in Cheshire. And one day he went to the Green Bank, um, or one of the pubs in, in Green Bank, and met my mother, who was a wonderful, literate, witty British woman. And they married, and I was born about a year and a half later. And I, because of that, I've had dual citizenship all my life, because I was born in England, uh, but um, as the son of an American GI, I also had American citizenship at the same time. Wow. And how, and how, how long did you stay here before you uh, got posted back, uh, back home, so to speak? Well, 
I went. I came back a lot in my teens, but but I I I remember when I was three, my parents said to me, "We're moving to the United States, and we're going to live in a place called Long Island." And I pictured, you know, palm trees and exotic. Long Island is yeah. like four thousand tract houses, and it was. <laughs> you know, and the, I must have had a British accent for about two months of my life because I was speaking at that time. And I remember the first words said to me by a kid in Long Island was, "Get off my property! Get off my <laughs> get get off my property! Get off my property!" And I think I lost my English accent in about forty-eight hours. <laughs> Uh, now you were you went back to America, but you weren't called Rupert Holmes when you were in England, were you? Uh, no, I was. Uh, my name was David Goldstein. Yeah, my father was Leonard Goldstein. My mother was Gwendolyn Pin, a really good Welsh name, P Y N N, because because yeah. uh, my family is half Welsh and half uh, English from Cheshire. Uh, but um, I came into songwriting at the age of eighteen. I started working in Tin Pan Alley. This is in the um, sort of the late sixties. And in those days, if your name was David Goldstein, they would turn to you and say, "Well, what's your real name going to be? What are you going to change it to?" <laughs> uh, and therefore, Bob Zimmerman became Bob Dylan. Yeah. Carol Carol Klein became Carol King, and Ross Bagdasarian of the Chipmunks became David Seville. So I guess I could have been David Gold, but I, I really wanted to get a name that would connect me with my British background and 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 my love of all things English because my mother <laughs> my mother raised me to believe that the American Revolution was a diplomatic blunder on the part of George Washington and uh, and that all things British were better of course than all things American so so I wanted to connect with that British upbringing I had and uh, I loved the name Rupert because of the great poet Rupert Brooke, but I also loved it because of Rupert Bear. Ah, right. And uh, and I thought, well, the, I don't know anyone named Rupert in the United States. There really wasn't a known name. I thought that'll be good. And then I kind of liked Sherlock Holmes, so I thought I'd graft myself onto his family tree. <laughs> I like that because, because where we came in with this, you know, there you are the only Rupert in the world ever to have a hit record, we think. Uh, and, you know, uh, I've got some guys from the Mafia who are going to see to it that it remains that way. <laughs> Don't you dare try to have a hit if your name is Rupert. Because <laughs> Rupert here, because Rupert's tend to be kind of posh boys. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. That, I mean, well, Rupert, you're, you're, you are a bit of a posh boy. Oh, generally. really? Yeah. Oh, that, that ain't me, buddy. <laughs> 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 now, you, now the the famous uh, Pinnacolada song, which was the sort of root into you here, really. Yeah. Um, you, but you'd said you'd, you'd had success, like with Barbara Streisand and and stuff with, like that beforehand. Yes, I I had recorded my first album in 1974, and uh, I get a phone call, and it and a voice says, "Hi, this is Barbara Streisand. I've just listened to your album. I really like the songs on it, and." Uh, I'd like to record some of them. I see you do all your own arrangements, so maybe you should fly out here and do the sessions with me. And I'm I'm working on a movie called A Star Is Born. Maybe you could write some of the songs for that. And I said I said to this voice, I said that is the worst Barbara Streisand impression I have ever heard. Of course, it, it really was her. And I went out and and worked with I worked with her in the seventies and. Um, uh, if you remember, there's a song in A Star is Born in particular called Queen Bee. It's the first thing she sings in the movie where she's um, sandwiched in between two black singers. And the group is called the Oreos, which was considered to be a funny joke in those days um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, yeah. the, the, of the cookie. And, um, and I wrote a couple of more songs for her. She's done about eight of my songs over the years, and I've done several albums with her. But um, And people started recording my tunes, people like Barry Manilow and Dionne Warwick and Dolly Parton. But um, 
I hadn't landed on the charts, and um, it took five albums for me to put out a song called Escape, which later became subtitled the Pina Colada song. It was number one in the United States, Canada, Japan, Australia. Couldn't crack it. That it did, just didn't land that high in the in the UK, um, and it was a shame. I had actually been in the seventies. I produced a lot of British rock bands. I don't know if you know that. I I produced a Glass of Champagne by Sailor. Yeah. You may remember that too. Uh, yeah. And uh, Girls, 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 and a great artist, just one of the most talented artists I ever worked with, named John Miles. And I did the orchestrations and production on a on a single he had called Slow Down. Slow Down. Yeah, that, that was, was me. That was you. That was my chart. What a great, chart. what a great song that was. Yeah. So I was keeping busy and out of trouble, but it took till 1980 when it went to number one everywhere except, unfortunately, um, the UK. Yeah, but and, and then the, the follow-up was a, a hymn which uh, I, I like as well. But uh, and I think I've probably got the single somewhere in my garage somewhere. It, it went to it went to number six on the Billboard charts. But it's it's amazing how one song can be completely forgotten and yet <laughs> Pina, Pina Colada lasts forever. It's made of kryptonite or something. I don't know. And, it, and it's been in many many movies, of course. Oh yeah. Uh, and do you just get a phone call one day say, hey, we're going to put it in the movie, or does it just happen and then you just take the money? Um, it depends. If they want to change the lyrics to the song, yeah. they have they have to consult me, get my permission. Sometimes they ask me to do it. Um, there was a, a movie that Cameron Diaz made called The Sweetest Thing, where they wanted to change the chorus to a slightly obscene, uh, I'm not going to say the words yeah. here, but a slightly obscene version of the lyric. And I said... No, because I don't want to have people singing that at me for the rest of my life. But, uh, for example, it's a big song called Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. And uh, in that case, you just hear the good news from your publisher who says, oh, yeah, we've uh, we've licensed it to uh, to um, whoever the filmmaker may be. But it's been in a ton of films. Wow. It must, it must be amazing. I mean, it's just got... Uh, when, you, when you wrote it... I, I, well, when you wrote it, what's it, what's it about? Where, is, is it a real girl that you're talking about? Or what? Is it made-up story? No, you know, the mo that's the question I'm asked the most, James, of any question in the world. They, people want me to say that, yeah, it's a real story. Um, it, it, it isn't, I'm afraid to say. I have to, I have to occasionally dabble in the truth. <laughs> I, I had a track I, I had to, uh, that I liked on the fifth album I was recording. Um, and this, how I came with, up with this track uh, is too long to go into here. But I, I w had to come up with a lyric by the next morning. And I knew that the song had to be a story song because the track itself wasn't that interesting harmonically. So I was sitting, it's about 1 a.m. in my apartment. And uh, I'm, I look at the back of a newspaper called The Village Voice. And there are all these personal columns on the back page. And I wondered, you know, if all these people are as wonderful as they describe themselves as being, why do they have to place an ad? Um, and then I thought, okay, be fair, be fair. Um, maybe they're looking for just that the adventure of meeting someone unknown. And then I thought to myself, well, if I placed that ad, what would happen to me? And if I ever, uh, sorry, not if I placed an ad, but if I ever answered one of these ads, yeah. what, what would happen to me? And I thought, you know, with my luck, it would end up being my wife who's placed the ad because she's so <laughs> bored with me, you know. And uh, and there, therein was a um, a lyric. Suddenly, I'm scribbling down a lyric. And when I wrote the lyric, James, it, it was I, the the line was, "If you like Humphrey Bogart and getting caught in the rain." And that next morning, after I wrote the lyric, I went to the recording session we had at Top Radio City Music Hall, and. As I was standing there about to sing the vocal, um, I thought, well, I've done a lot of movie references with Streisand, things. Maybe I need something different. These people, they're looking for an escape. 
what are these that you know when you go on vacation you never order you know a, a pint of Watney's Red Barrel you 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 you, you want to have an exotic drink if you're in the islands and, yeah. uh, so I thought what are the exotic escape drinks Mai Tai daiquiri pina colada I'd never had a pina colada in my life ever mm-hmm. and I just said okay let's see if you like Humphrey Bogart no. If you like pina colada, that'll work. And I sang the song straight through. And that is actually the vocal you hear on the record. It's the first time I ever sang the phrase pina colada and that lyric is the, the the first take had an energy to it that we could never recapture. So you're you're hearing my discovery of how the lyric can be squeezed into the song um, on, on the record itself. You started life uh, in the UK. Do you ever get back to the UK? Um, I do. The most significant time of my life, though, when I went back was in the 60s. I took my family went to visit uh, my English family uh, for two summers in a row. And um, in 1961, I got to start taking, I, I was alone, footloose in, in London with all of maybe two pounds in my pocket. <laughs> and I started taking in every play and musical I could see. I saw this actress named Maggie Smith. She was about yeah. 20, 22 years old in a play called Mary Mary. And um, it just had a tremendous influence, all that theater. And then in 63, I was staying at Tennyson Mansions in, uh, in Earl's Court, or Barron's Court, sorry, yeah. in Barron's Court. And um, something popped on the TV. It was a group called the Beatles. They had this strange haircut. <laughs> and they sang a new song called She Loves You. Yeah. And when I went back to the States, I felt like I was the messenger with the advanced news. Uh, I, I, I kept saying to my friends, get ready for your lives to change. And then they went on the Ed Sullivan show and the world musical world was changed overnight. So uh, both in terms of seeing lots of West End shows in the 60s and, and getting to hear the Beatles before most Americans did, um, that was that that was one of the richest experiences of my time in London. It's, it's interesting because uh, when you, you, you're... You're known for the the one hit worldwide, but then you look around and there's so much more. And, the, and the, your your love of theatre is is very apparent. And you've you've been involved in Broadway an awful lot, haven't you? Yeah, I've had um, I think it's eight Broadway shows thus far. The first one I wrote was a British musical, if you will forgive me putting it that way, based on an unfinished novel by Charles Dickens called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And we had Cleo Lane in the cast, Betty Buckley, and it won the Tony Award for Best Musical. I won for Best Score and Best Book. And we even got to come over to the Savoy in London and do it with Ernie Wise and Lulu. And that was (laughs) quite a treat for me. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Ernie Wise and Lulu, what star names. I know, I know. They were wonderful people to work with, too. Um, And then I've uh, written a a couple of other musicals uh, recently. I uh, had one called Curtains, which I wrote with Kandra Neb, um, with David Hyde Pierce from the TV show Frasier, and um, just had two shows on Broadway last year. Uh, one, my stage adaptation, not a musical, of John Grisham's famous novel, A Time to Kill, All right. uh, which I did as a courtroom drama on the Broadway stage, and a revival of The Mystery of Edwin Drood um, uh, on Broadway for the first time in 25 years. So I've been pretty busy with theater. And what, so you got the nutty, and the nutty Professor? You've been involved with the musical i wrote the uh, marvin hamlish and i yeah uh, this was the last musical last thing that marvin wrote he i was his songwriting partner for the last three years of his life and we wrote a musical based on jerry lewis's classic the nutty professor and it was directed by get ready uh jerry lewis
Lewis. So uh, if I could, I remember working with Jerry and thinking if I could only go back in time to when I used to watch the Martin and Lewis movies as a, as a boy and, and, and be able to tell myself back then, you know, someday Jerry Lewis is going to be your pal. Yeah. Uh, quite an amazing experience. Do you still perform uh, yourself as a singer or is that left, left you behind at the moment? Well, uh, you know, I, people ask me why I don't perform anymore and I say, well, I believe in giving the public what it wants. <laughs> Um, but but I here's the story, James. I'm good for a benefit. If if I can raise money for any fund that's worthwhile by getting onto a stage at my late age and and singing, escape the pina colada song. If if that'll do some good for somebody, I, I'll do that. But I don't I don't perform as such. I don't do it like an evening with or anything like that. It's uh, um, the the voice was always a little bit of a, a questionable thing to begin with, uh, but <laughs> but that that pina colada song is always good for you know you know we'll raffling off this way if you we have raff we have raffles where the prize is if you bid high enough uh, the prize is um, if you bid three thousand dollars you get Rupert Holmes to sing the pina colada song in your home and if you bid four thousand dollars you get Rupert Holmes promising not to sing the pina colada <laughs> song in your home. I guess the thing uh, you you sort of had a moment of ten years where you weren't sure about the pina colada song now you've embraced it again um the fact that it's afforded you to do what you really want to do i guess well that first musical i wrote i took it took me three years to write it i wrote the book and and the music and the lyrics and even the orchestrations i could not have taken three years out of my life to write that if i hadn't been sort of living off the the royalties from pina colada at that point so uh, it's it's really um served a lot of different purposes in my time so you in effect you wrote the pina colada song in in a couple of days, people. I actually wrote it in 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 about an hour. Although there are people, James, who think I should have taken two hours to write it. <laughs> well, it uh, it lives forever, and it still gets played an awful lot on the radio here. Even though it actually, you know, wasn't a, a huge uh, single hit here, which yeah. is it was always a always a shame. Uh, and around the world, you're well known. It, everywhere you go is your calling card. Oh yeah, Rupert Holmes, the uh, Pina Colada song. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I never, I should have made a, a deal with Coco Lopez that makes the coconut yeah. cream that you use to make the drink. I should have gone to them before I made the record and said, what's it worth to you, huh? Yeah. How about 5% of the company? Do you like, you know? uh, do you actually like pina coladas? Well, uh, I like a well-made pina colada. They're a drink that is very easy to make badly. Um, and the other problem is that you have to understand that almost every day of my life, uh, if I meet someone at a place that serves cocktails, <laughs> the person with me will say, oh, you're not going to believe this. I'm just going to do something really impulsive and crazy. Waitress, over here, uh, two pina coladas. You know who this is? And, <laughs> and, you know, people are kind, so you have to drink it. So I've probably, my insulin levels are really probably in great danger from drinking that, that beverage. <laughs> Well, it's, if you ever do uh, pass our way again, and I, won't, I won't offer you an alcoholic cocktail. <laughs> no, no pina coladas, thank you. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Wonderful to talk to you. There we have him, Rupert Holmes, uh, Escape. Anyone for a pina colada, uh, don't offer it. If you ever meet him, don't offer him a pina colada. He's heard that once once or twice before. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Show Talk, the podcast. Uh, all very, very exciting. I'm James Watt. Don't forget to subscribe away. That'll be lovely. Send me a message. Say hello. I'd love to hear from you uh, at James Watt UK on Twitter. It's probably the one that gets to me quickest. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe and you can get another one of these uh, well, when we do one, which could be pretty soon. Uh, thanks very much. Catch you next time. <laughs>